I'm Dr. Nathaniel Chin, and you're listening to Dementia Matters, a podcast about Alzheimer's disease. Dementia Matters is a production of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our goal is to educate listeners on the latest news in Alzheimer's disease research and caregiver strategies. Thanks for joining us. My guest today on Dementia Matters is Dr. Eric Larson, a physician scientist and senior investigator at Kaiser Permanente Washington Health Research Institute. Dr. Larson is a national leader in geriatrics, health services, and clinical research and has been elected member of the National Academy of Medicine since 2007. Dr. Larson is here with us today to discuss a recent National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine report on dementia care interventions. Dr. Larson, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Glad to be with you. Before we jump into the recent report on caregiving interventions, I'd like to start out by asking you a question I ask a lot of my guests. What sparked your interest in becoming a geriatrician and Alzheimer's disease and dementia researcher? That's a really interesting question, and it harkens back to a fond memory. Uh, When I finished my training, I was the chief resident at University Hospital in Seattle. And a a friend and colleague invited me to start a dementia clinic, the first outpatient dementia clinic in the country, actually, the Geriatrics and Family Services Program, we called it. And I thought I knew everything because I'd been a chief resident. And when I started seeing the people that we were seeing in our clinic as an internist, I realized what I'd been taught didn't fit with what I was seeing and what I was experiencing. And even when I went to the literature, I would read papers, and and there's one paper in the Annals of Internal Medicine that I'll never forget on uh, dementia, the silent epidemic, or something like that. And there was a table listing all the reversible causes of dementia in the elderly. And I read to the papers, and all the papers were dementia in people under the ages of 60. So it was like, there's there's so much you can discover. And at the same time, the, the needs were so great for, for these people. This was back in the late 1970s, so it was a long time ago. Now, the field of geriatrics needs more physicians. So what would you say to young medical students looking for a specialty and even considering geriatrics? Well, I think from the standpoint of a professional satisfaction, uh, geriatrics has to rank way up there with almost any other specialty you can imagine. And it's a, it's a specialty that you kind of grow into if you're, if you're young and you start out. And if you're like me, I'm 74 now, all of a sudden I'm a subject. And I've learned over these decades a tremendous amount. And, and a lot of being, uh, I think having a, a satisfying career is, is that sort of discovery, the lifelong learning aspect of, of medicine. And you never master but you, you do get better and you feel that uh, gain an understanding as, as, as pleasurable, at least I do. And I would agree with you. I have great job satisfaction and reward in what I do as a geriatrician. But then knowing that, why do you think the field struggles to attract younger doctors? I, I don't know. I mean, I can speculate, but I, I do think that there is sort of a fear of getting older and there is a fear, I think, of being identified as somebody who just takes care of old people. And I am a geriatrician in the sense that this is my where I do my work, but I still think of myself also as a general internist. Uh, and 
I, I got into all kinds of trouble at one point in my career because I argued that every general internist should be a geriatrician because you can't practice internal medicine over time if you're doing, doing primary care without being a geriatrician. And nobody was happy with that, but uh, <laughs> I still believe that's true. I think that's a really interesting comment because you're talking about stigma, right? The stigma or fear of getting older as a, as a potential geriatrician. But obviously in the field that you work in Alzheimer's disease, there's a great amount of stigma too. And that impacts the care that's delivered and in the identification of it. So that's a very interesting corollary that, that you've identified. And it helps me segue, of course, into you know why we're here today, which is this report, this really important report that came out. And so the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, they recently released this report called Meeting the Challenge of Caring for People, Persons Living with Dementia, and Their Care Partners and Caregivers. So that's a mouthful, but I think it's a really important- A way forward. Add that subtitle, a way forward. A way forward. Thank you for correcting me. And so what is the role of the National Academy of Medicine, and why did it conduct and release this report on caregiving? Well, the, the National Academy of Medicine was founded- I think around the time of the Civil War, as the advisor to the nation on science, it was the National Academy of Science originally, and the National Academy of Medicine came up, came along about 52 or so years ago. And same thing, to advise the nation on the science of medicine or, or, or science of medicine and, and health. You know, you qualify for membership, you, you, you volunteer, and the academy uh, is awarded support to take on meaty topics that need the, the world or the nation needs advice on those topics. And so in this case, uh, the National Academy and uh, the National Institute on Aging said, we need a consensus study report on this topic. And so a committee was formed and we worked for almost, uh, it was three years to, to write this report because it involved not just convening a committee, but setting the, the the sort of parameters of what we were going to do and write about, and then launching a search, uh, uh, a evidence-based medicine search of what is known and what qualifies to meet quality uh, standards for proof. Uh, and so uh, I've, I've worked on a number of these reports, but this, this one was a very, very important report. It took quite a long time because because of this the literature is thousands and thousands of papers wow and i think that's important for our listeners to know one that you guys are all volunteers that this is a collection of experts but they're all still volunteering to do this Mm -hmm. and that too it took so long to review and then write this document yeah wow and and we had consumers too Uh, we had lay lay people uh who had had an interest in in, in, in dementia and especially dementia caregiving. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that too, to have, make sure that that perspective was included. Right. Well, and I guess with that in mind, can you offer us a brief summary of the findings or the key things that you think our audience should know about this document? Yeah. I, I mean, it starts with the title, Meeting the Challenge. You know, I think it's, it's evident to a lot of people, if not most people, that there is a challenge in terms of providing humane and and effective care to people who are living with dementia and especially 
the people providing that care, the caregivers and the care partners. And, you know, I think that some of the key points of the report are a table. Uh, it's called Box 2-1. Uh, we, we came together with a set of principles for caregiving, and there are six of them. The first is person-centeredness. You know, we think have to think about persons living with dementia as persons. And all too often, I think that can be forgotten. And, and it's, it's, it's not good. <laughs> a promotion of well-being. It's not promotion of no, you know, preventing cognitive decline necessarily, but it could be, but it's well-being. And, and that should be the target of caregiving. Respect and dignity, treat people with respect and dignity. Justice is, is the fourth principle. And again, meet people with equal and need equally, racial, ethnic, sexual, cultural, and linguistic inclusivity. And the last is accessibility and affordability. And I don't know that anybody had ever enunciated those quite the way we did. And and that, that to me is the probably the most important part of the report, establishing that. There's another table that follows looking at the core components and you from an ADRC and a geriatrician, this, this would not be news to you, you know, detection, diagnosis, uh, advanced care planning, you know, the first and the last of several different boxes. And then what we did was we consumed the report that the Minnesota uh, Evidence Practice Center developed for what evidence is out there. And at the end of the day, we came up with two general categories of services, if you will, that would qualify for uh, inclusion in efforts to disseminate. Because part of the question that we were asked is, is there anything ready beyond principles to disseminate and to begin to promote as this is a good way to care for persons living with dementia and their care partners and caregivers? The two were collaborative care models, and those are directed to those providing the care and the principles for providing the care being uh, collaborative care. And the other is these multi-component interventions for informal caregivers, and that's the REACH type program. So those two were the two elements, if you will, of here's what we can start to work on as a country trying to do a better job or that way forward for caring for persons living with dementia. And I'm actually going to get to those two particular programs in a second. Before I do, I wanted to ask you, what are the current limitations of the existing research on dementia care interventions for patients and caregivers? And how can we overcome those limitations? I think, you know, it's a good question. You know, we, we should always be aware of it. The problem is the heterogeneity of the disease and the heterogeneity of the situations where people are receiving care. And to try to standardize high quality evidence in the, that much heterogeneity is really hard because too often you dumb down what you're trying to do in order to produce high quality evidence. And when you have that much kind of noise in the system, which is heterogeneity, it just makes it difficult. And, you know, I, some of the papers that I thought I had worked on with colleagues in my career would have been perfect for, for this. They didn't meet the standard of the EPC. And, uh, and I think uh, the, the challenge is really, we may need to rethink what constitutes convincing evidence 
in this field, but it doesn't mean we should stop trying to get the best, highest quality evidence of all. You know, I really appreciate you saying that because it, it does tell me that it not only is the disease complex, but so are our patients' circumstances, but perhaps even the care environment is, is different based on where you live and the state you live in and the region and the, the, the healthcare organization that you're in. And the stage of the disease. What kind of care do you need if you're just having some mild cognitive impairment and maybe no dysfunction? Maybe none. Maybe some. Who knows? So in your title, I thought it was interesting that you said care partner and caregiver. You made, a, you made an effort to use both. So what is the difference between care partner and caregiver, as you note in the report? Well, that difference, we, we didn't start out with that difference. <laughs> we started out with caregivers. And we heard from the field, and this was largely the advocacy groups and people that were providing care, that we're not just caregivers. We, you don't just give care, but we partner in the relationship we have with our, it's usually a family member, uh, but the idea of a partnership seemed a lot less one way, if you will, because there's a there's a dialectic going on. And in fact, in, as you as you read the report and, and, and read some of the stories, we have to listen to our patients or our, our, our spouses or our parents who have dementia. And we can learn so much as, if we partner with them as opposed to just give them the care, you know, we think should be given. Well, knowing that, I'm really, I really like your title. Initially, I thought it was a bit wordy, but I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think a lot of family members and care partners out there would appreciate that, that this is a two-way relationship, if not more, with multiple family members. Yeah, well, it goes back to that, that principle of uh, personhood and respect. M many available interventions for patients and caregivers focus on the individual. What are some community or policy or societal interventions that really should be explored? You know, I, I think the, the idea of trying to create dementia-friendly communities, for example. Uh, in the Netherlands, of course, they've, they've built villages that are safe. And Peter Whitehouse and, and his wife have developed these programs where you, you have persons with dementia being placed in, with, with young people in schools that learn and, and, they, sh and they share joy uh, together. Uh, I think that the, at the community level, we've not been as uh, creative as we could have been. And again, part of the challenge is this whole evidence base. How do you prove that something like this is really, really helpful? And I, I, you know, I, I don't think we saw that at all. But, but uh, to me, there's, there's a way forward in that space. And I think we can look to other countries for guidance there as well. Now, I want to go back to what you had mentioned earlier about those other, those two programs. So based on the systematic review, the committee found that those two programs had the most evidence of benefit, and those were only supported really by low, low strength evidence, but still evidence. So the collaborative care model that for our audience, that, that really means integrating medical and psychosocial care. It's usually a multidisciplinary team and not just one provider. And then REACH, which stands for Resources for Enhancing Alzheimer's Caregiving Health. And that was an intervention aimed at supporting family caregivers. So with that in mind, knowing that those are the two that we have, does that mean that we stop programs with low strength of benefit? And if not, how do we continue to evaluate these programs and expand on them? 
Well, I, I'm one of those people that, that believes that searching for higher quality is, is a journey and you never quite get there, but it's a learning process. And so you take these two programs as sort of some principles to work from, and you continue to refine them based on different sites, different maybe ethnic racial groups, uh, different uh, socioeconomic situations and so forth. And if you are providing care and using the model, you you have to be iterative about, you know, we're going to do this and hopefully it, it helps a person's well-being or, or if it doesn't and, and and our staff also can't handle it, we may make adjustments. So it's a, it's a virtual cycle, we call it in, in quality improvement of plan, do, check, act from a program that you're, you're, you're mounting. Well, the, if people are evolving and changing, so should the programs that help them, right? Right, right. Well, I, I do want to insert a couple of, of, of new updated questions with you because some recent things have happened that have affected the Alzheimer's disease field. And so now that the FDA has approved the first ever disease-modifying medication for Alzheimer's disease, aducanumab, do you worry that more attention and resources will be pulled away from the care work and care partner caregiving that's needed in research and clinical care towards this medication that slows disease? Yes, I do. I do. Uh, I, I remember when the uh, cholinesterase inhibitors came on the market, I was still very involved in, in caregiving myself uh, as, a, as a son, as a doctor, as a person who led a, a major medical center. And we did see this notion of, well, we can make a diagnosis and all we have to do as providers is write the prescription and check with me in a year and see how you're doing. And that's not going to work. And it's clearly not going to work with this new drug, which has not the most attractive safety profile uh, uh, of drugs. So, and we don't know if it works. It's, it's only been released with a proviso that it needs to be evaluated to see if it works in the field. So uh, I worry about that because there is a tendency to not want to confront the challenge of caring for a person living with dementia or supporting the, the care partner. And, and I do think that, that in the report there, there's clearly a call to say, we've got to consider this part of our obligation as caregivers, and in my case, I'm a physician or, or a son or a, or a husband, but also uh, as a society. You know, you many people have said that you, you can judge the quality of a society by how they take care of the people who are impaired. And clearly, this is an impairment. And uh, I think if we think about how can we take the impairment and the disability and allow that person to function in the level that is promotes their their well-being. And I'm not sure that these drugs are necessarily going to going to do something about well-being just because they remove amyloid. No, I appreciate your insight on that and and have, you know, talking to someone who was around when those medications first came out, those acetylcholinesterase inhibitors is important. Many people have made a similar comparison of, well, we thought that was a big deal then too, but there's still more work to be done. We still have to provide great care to people living yeah. with this disease. Yeah. In the beginning of the interview, I asked you what you'd say to a future doctor in considering geriatrics, for instance. Yeah. Now to end, I'd like to know what you'd say to someone about to become an Alzheimer's disease caregiver, care partner. That is a really, really good question. And 
I think I'd probably say, remember, you're on a journey. And the way you navigate this journey can have tremendous variation and, and will. Uh, it's hard to predict what's going to happen next. But if you can learn from the person you're providing care for, what their needs are and for improving their well-being and start from that place and then learn the skills that, for example, are available in a program like REACH, you'll find it very uh, personally meaningful. On the other hand, it can be exhausting. And one of the things that you need to do is not just take care of that person you're providing care for, but take care of yourself. And in both instances, promoting something as vague, if you will, as happiness or well-being probably is a decent goal. And then as you move further into the stages of the disease, you cannot avoid the need for planning. And, uh, and planning, if, if at all possible, in a way that respects that person you're planning with, their values and their wishes. Well, that was a wonderful conclusion. Thank you, Dr. Larson. Thank you for your time today uh, and for your review of this this important document that's come out. Um, I appreciate having you on Dementia Matters. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Dementia Matters. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts to be notified about upcoming episodes. You can also listen to our show by asking your smart speaker to play the Dementia Matters podcast. And please rate us on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find our show and lets us know how we're doing. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. The Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center combines academic, clinical, and research expertise from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and the Geriatric Research, Education, and Clinical Center of the William S. Middleton Memorial Veterans Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. It receives funding from private, university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes of Health for Alzheimer's Disease Centers. This episode of Dementia Matters was produced by Rebecca Wazaleski and edited by Kaylin Rowerdink. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. To learn more about the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center and Dementia Matters, check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. That's adrc.wisc.edu. Follow us on Facebook at Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center and find us on Twitter at Wisconsin ADRC. If you have any questions or comments, email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.